Into Great Ideas, a series about the ideas that have shaped the world we live in, created in association with Victoria University of Wellington. I'm Megan Whelan, and in this series, we'll look at what it takes to change our perspective, consider why these ideas still matter, and what happens to us next. Language doesn't just help us pass on our ideas. It shapes and is shaped by the way we understand our world. In this episode, we'll look at the ways different language users perceive the world and also the extent to which the world prompts the way we speak. And what actually does it mean when something is lost in translation? I am joined by a panel of experts from Victoria University and I have asked them to tell me their favourite word. So I'm Sasha Calhoun. I'm from the Linguistics Programme. Um, my area of speciality is actually prosody and intonation, so stress and rhythm and tune. Um, but today we're going to talk about words more. Um, and the words I've chosen are up and down. Um, and that's because they are, seem very simple words that express directions, either going upwards or downwards. But we can use them in so many different ways to have different kinds of meanings, um, such as get up and get down. And get down can mean a direction as well, and it can also mean get down with it. With your bad self. Um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, we can also use them with slightly less nice meanings, like um, to put up with someone or to put someone down, and a whole host of other reasons, um, usages of just up and down. Hi, I'm Paul Warren. I'm also in the linguistics program at Victoria University of Wellington, and my special area of, of research is the psychology of language, psycholinguistics, but I also teach in New Zealand English and phonetics and phonology. The word I've chosen is a German word, Schadenfreude, and I'm sure many listeners have, have come across this word but might not know um, what it means. It doesn't really have a direct translation into English. And that's one of the reasons I've chosen this word, because I think it's fascinating to look at other languages and see how words exist in one language to express concepts that we might have but haven't really got a single word for. Schadenfreude really means um, taking pleasure at other people's misfortune. The literal translation, the first part, schaden, means damage, and the freude part means joy, so it's damage joy. And it captures in one word something which uh, is possibly something we feel from time to time, hopefully not too often, that idea that somebody else has had some bad luck and we're kind of profiting from it in some way. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Epstein. I'm from the Asian Studies program at Victoria University as well. And my area of focus within Asian studies is particularly on Korea, South Korea, and contemporary culture, society, literature. I do literary translation and also have a real interest in Indonesia as well. I started out my career in classics. Uh, strangely enough, to some people, my PhD is in Greek literature, and that's where I began here at Victoria. So um, I think I'm here not so much as a linguist, but somebody who's had a lot of language, various language experience. And the word I've chosen is one that also comes from German, as Paul's did, and I think maybe a, a question or discussion we can have is whether our words now count as German or as English. And the word I have is Mensch. And I've chosen that simply because I happen to be using it in conversation with a colleague last week who, uh, like myself, is originally from the United States. And she said how much she loved the word. And I said, yes, I, I really like it too. But she was saying that a lot of times people here in New Zealand don't necessarily know or recognize that the usage of the word, which is quite frequent in the United States for somebody who happens to be just a really great 
person, somebody very humane. So having that that idea of the man in mensch, but somebody taking that to mean someone who is particularly human, I suppose. Nice. One of my favorite words is also, I think, Yiddish, which is chutzpah. Is that how you say it? Chutzpah. chutzpah. Yeah, yeah, get the ch yeah. going. <laughs> chutzpah. <laughs> Sorry, microphone. I just spat all over you. It's delightful. Um, it, but uh, that's another word that, that we don't really have kind of, I guess, sasses maybe the thing, mm. but it's a bit more than mm. that, right? It's a bit more um, forward than that maybe. And yeah. How is it that I, I find this idea that we don't have words in English for concepts that we have in English? So Schadenfreude is a perfect example. Why is there not an English word for that? Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, you'd have thought that we would, you know, we would find a need for for a word and create the word to to, you know, to fill that need. Um, well, word, I think Schadenfreude, as, as Stephen intimated, may well have come into the English language now because there wasn't a, a word in English that expressed that particular concept. So you'll probably not be um, too surprised to hear somebody using that word in an English sentence, even though it's a, a German word, and same with, same with Mensch. Um, and English, of course, is a very avid borrower of words from other languages. Um, this strange idea that languages borrow from one another. I think English borrows but never gives back. So it's, it's stealing words from other languages. Um, and uh, even though there may not be a sort of Anglo-Saxon native word for schadenfreude, we probably will find that we can use that word and, and increasingly people will understand what it means. Um, but there is that big idea about uh, you know, language, different languages express things in different ways. Uh, not all concepts um, or relations between concepts are going to be available um, through linguistic means in all languages. Um, yeah, I had a I had a wee Google around last night and I was looking at this and I can't remember the actual word, but it was a word in one of the Scandinavian languages that literally meant um, uh, sadness weight, and it was uh, the weight you gain when you uh, when you're when you're heartbroken from eating too much. When you're mm. heartbroken, it was something like literally sadness bacon, and that made me so happy. The idea that we have these these huge ideas that that are really difficult to explain, and some people have just come up with a word for them. That's that's is that what we do? Is that what makes us human? Sasha, I'm going to throw that one to you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Um, yes, yeah, so I think that is. Our, our need to express the things that are most important to us has a big part to play in what um, in what words come into being in different languages. Um, then the languages themselves get to work <laughs> on, on what is expressed. Um, but you can come, you can find all sorts of lovely examples. Uh, so I was at a talk the other week on an Australian Aboriginal language that has a, one particular word for the concept of sitting by a fire and rubbing um, and rubbing the person next to you's hands, so you can both share in the warmth of that fire. <laughs> oh wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> Which is also a romantic, can be a romantic yeah. thing, but. Not yeah. necessarily, and I just love that that kind of moment is something that was mm. obviously very special and important to people in that when they did, used to sit by fires quite regularly, so they came up with a word for it. Is this where language came from? This need to express an idea, or is it purely about we needed to communicate? So we needed to be able to say, "There's a fire over there. Don't go that way." So that's the sixty-five million dollar question. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of different theories about where language came from. So um, at least one of them is the it was arose out of various kinds of danger call systems um, that are, exist in other um, in other apes and other mammals. Um, another one is that it arose along 
alongside um, greater human cooperation. So it arose as um, our um, <laughs> monkey forebears, sorry, the monkey, um, yep. oh, not eight, eight forebears, um, became less inclined to to kill each other and more inclined to cooperate and that language developed along um, alongside that increased cooperation um, and particularly um, the need for mothers to pass on things to their children, so the need to be able to teach um, teach uh, methods and ways of living and ways of, of being in the world that were increasingly complex became something that mothers needed to pass on to their children. So that's another theory of where always about the mothers. language came from. <laughs> the, the, it's also not just the individual words, right? It's the sounds that we make and mm-hmm. the way our brain processes them. So I know that the, mm-hmm. the, the sound of a crying baby is mm-hmm. is this your brain registers that as danger mm-hmm. essentially which is why sirens are the same sounds and why I learned <laughs> the other day fingers on blackboards are so irritating because it's that sound of danger so it's not just the language isn't just words I guess is, is what I'm saying mm-hmm. that, that's right and there's um, quite an industry being made on looking at the relationship between individual sounds or groups of sounds and um, and whether they might have um, sort of some sort of collective meaning so the notion of sound symbolism, uh, which is kind of related to onomatopoeia. So onomatopoeia is when you have a word which represents the sound that perhaps an animal makes. And so children might learn that a dog is actually you know, initially called a bow-wow or a, or a woof before they learn the word dog. Um, but there are, there are very few words um, across languages which are truly onomatopoeic. Uh, but sound symbolism goes beyond that and, and, as you say, looks at the individual sounds for instance, um, if you th- look across languages at the words for uh, a mouse's squeak, many of them have an e sound in them, um, which uh, also occurs in a lot of words across languages, which mean small things. Um, not the word small, of course, that has quite a different vowel in but it. But, we. but words like we and perhaps tiny. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a there's a an idea there that the sounds that get used in words that represent a particular group of meanings then become associated with those meanings. And so the sounds kind of take on this symbol- mm. symbolic link between um, what they sound like and, and a particular meaning. And, yeah, the baby's cry might be one instance of where a non-linguistic sound um, takes on a, a very clear meaning. Um, one of the issues, and, and Stephen might want to comment on this, one of the issues with onomatopoeia, of course, is that... Um, Onomatopoeia is, being, is taken as, as evidence for there being some kind of um, direct relationship between the sounds of a word and what a word means. Um, so that in that sense, there is um, a sort of direct link between the form and the meaning of words, which should, in theory, if that existed universally across languages, should, in theory, make it very easy to communicate between languages because we'd all have pretty much the same words for different meanings. Mm. But Stephen has a wealth of experience of different languages, including um, Southeast Asian languages, where um, you can probably uh, give us examples of, of you know, what a dog bark is in Korean. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking of animal sounds because it's mong mong is yeah. what a dog says in Korean. And I suspect that most English speakers, if you said what is represented by mong mong, in Korea. They might guess a dog, or thinking in, in terms of, of animals would, would get there eventually. So every, I think every language I've uh, studied has some form of onomatopoeia. 
is somewhere in there. And often it is related to these things like things that are sounds. But some languages and where things can get really interesting is Korean has what we might call mimetic words. So they don't represent a sound, but they might represent something like uh, that you see. Mm -hmm. For example, a sparkling sound uh, or sparkling sight, if a, a something that is twinkling, mm-hmm. sparkling. And a lot of our words that are related, glitters, twinkle, sparkle from, from Anglo-Saxon, maybe they convey a little bit of that feeling as well. But what happens in Korean is that there's a dif- distinction between if the vowels, if you use an a or o, it's kind of smaller and cuter. So banchak, banchak would be little twinkling, whereas banchak, banchak would be something a bit... Bigger or, so that's or, the like, same how, word, but with a, just a slightly different vowel I, sound. I, I would call them two different words. Right. The same uh, consonant mm-hmm. roots around it, but the vowel is yeah. changing. And for colors, you see that, like uh, something would be a sharper, dark, gamensek, as opposed to gamensek, is a duller black. Wow. So oh. that this is a fairly thoroughgoing pattern in Korean, and you just sort of feel, it's how people come to feel their own mm. language, I would say. One of my favourite things, uh, this is not actually a word, but in T-line, which is shorthand, which is what journalists use to write quickly, if you don't forget it like most journalists do, um, the the T-line outline for animal looks like an animal. Um, So it sort of goes like that. So it looks like it has a head and a tail. Um, and it's the one I can always remember because it looks like an animal. So <laughs> these ideas are partly are about right helping us to remember the words that we need to use to explain things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> is it is it hard then to make that connection across languages? So, Stephen, you've done obviously you have lots of languages. So, how do you go about remembering the different things in different languages when when you're trying to remember them in different ways? So, trying to remember vocabulary, yeah. pick up different words. Yeah. Um, it helped actually. I would isn't say that a different it, part of your brain basically that the vowel sounds in Korean are different to the vowel sounds in. English? Hmm. Uh, is it a different part of my bl- brain? I, what I might say is that there is a native language box I have in my brain and a second language box uh-huh. in, in my brain. But for the actual sounds, hmm, haven't really thought about that. I, probably not that you get into a feeling for how you are going to talk about or feel a different language, maybe. Um, but with remembering vocabulary, I often try to hook it onto something else that I have. And if you have more languages, if it somehow is related to a word you know from another language, that often will be something that gives you a little bit of a mnemonic device to to hold on to. But otherwise, it's just going through and saying it to yourself and repeating it so that – it sticks in your brain, and sometimes it takes several passes to get something to stick. And I think people who are successful language learners often find ways to create these mnemonic devices so that there are associations for a particular word and a concept so that it sinks in more quickly than with others. So that was a long way to lead you into a question. Yeah. Do you think in different languages? When, um, yeah, really got a groove going. And a lot of it, I would say that I would think if if I'm in Korea long term, then I might switch my, my thinking for, for simple stuff would be immediately in, in Korean. More complex stuff, I'm probably engaging in some sort of translational process in, in my head. But certain things, say, around the house um, – 
my my wife is Korean. My daughter's first language is uh, was Korean, although English has taken over. But some stuff is so automatic that it just pops right out in Korean, and there's no thought process that goes on in English. So, as English speakers, do do, do we all think in English? Is that how that works? As New Zealand English speakers, are we are we <laughs> speaking? Uh, are we thinking in English? There's a lot of thinking that we do without using language, without being aware of language. Um, I think when you, when you have more conscious thought, then you do think through language. And um, just following up on Stephen's uh, discussion of, of his experience, I found um, I, I learned German as my first second language, and I found after living in in Austria for a year that I was actually thinking very fluently in German, um, and. Um, that actually interfered with my English when I when when my parents then came out to meet me in Austria and I was talking about things and I was using English words but German expressions. So I was sort of translating a German expression through English words. Um, but that that disappears quite quickly when you move away from those communities. So you have to be I think you have to be immersed in those communities to continue those kinds of thought processes. And Stephen's in a position where he's you know, he's immersed in that community at yeah. home, whereas whereas I'm not. Yeah. So I don't often think in German um, anymore. Um, but back to your question, I think, yes, language does um, feature in our thought processes. Um, it can heavily influence our thought processes as well. So it can constrain the kind of thinking we do. But I think there's an awful lot of thinking and dreaming that we do that doesn't involve language um, at all. Um, and, you know, by dreaming, I mean daydreaming as well as <laughs> dreaming during the night. Um, but the, yeah, the question of whether language um, influences our thought is a, is a really interesting issue that's... Um, been discussed by linguists for, for a very long time. Um, and Sasha may want to, to, to comment on that, so that's one area that she's uh, taught on recently. So this brings us to linguistic determinism, yeah. right? <laughs> well, just back to, um, to another point that Stephen was making, um, and you said, do you have a different box? So the interesting thing about most of the research, a lot of the research that's been done on bilingualism and people who actively use two languages is the evidence is that in some sense both of your languages or all of your languages are activated at the same time always. So even when, you're spe- when a bilingual person is speaking English, the other language is there and they're constantly having to use their executive, executive control processes right. to suppress the wrong word and get the right word to come wow. up. Yeah. <laughs> um, that brands are amazing. <laughs> Um, and I was actually at a conference last week where, where there was a lot of research being presented on bilingual children uh, acquiring two languages growing up. And um, they were saying that, so it's another long standing finding for infant language development that starting at about six months, we, we um, start losing the ability to distinguish sounds that are not relevant to our language. So before that, sounds from any language, whether they're relevant to us or not, infant brains are actually very sensitive in being able to pick those up, but right. then they start to, it starts to decline. But for bilingual children growing up bilingually, that's, that stays for a lot longer. They, they stay open to different contrasts, even ones that are not relevant in any of their languages. Wow. So you're kind of it is influencing your thought, your thoughts, and your your thinking, in, in at least that yeah. sense that our, the perceptual systems remain more flexible to different sounds for a lot longer. This might be a, an incredibly simple and stupid question, mm-hmm. but if if a child learns two languages at the same time, does it take them longer to learn language if they're having to like longer to learn how to speak and talk if they're having to do that? brain activity of figuring out what the right word is? <laughs> so that was certainly, that that was the kind of orthodox view until fairly recently and it's now been shown that 
if it depends how you look at it. So um, as I was just saying before, ch- children re- maintain that flexibility for longer, which means that it might take them longer to make decisions about like what word to produce or uh, what word they're hearing. However, overall, if you take into account both of their languages, they are acquiring vocabulary across both of their languages at about the same rate. Yeah. And I suppose we are all constantly learning languages. I can make it sound like we get to the point that we know what we're talking about. Yes, the monolinguals here are very much in the minority. If you look around the world, bilingual communities are very much um, more in evidence than monolingual communities. And um, following up on Sasha's point, one of the things that you find with bilingual children is that they will mix the languages in single utterances. And they're much more likely to do that if they're in a, a bilingual community where that is very much part of the, the normal practice. Um, and so you get code switching going on in um, children's speech, which can persist if the community is a community that also has code switching in the, in the interactions between adults. But if you're a bilingual growing up with, with uh, perhaps uh, two parents with different languages, you're gr- learning both of those languages, but the communities that those your, your parents belong to are separate communities then as a child you will sort that out very rapidly and you end up with, um, with two, two languages uh, and, yeah. and a very good awareness, which children seem to get very early, of which community each language belongs to. And bilingual children will actually be very distraught sometimes when they um, hear somebody who they think is a speaker of language A speaking language B to them. So, yeah, no, you're not a speaker of that language. You should be speaking the other language. Um, so they're very much aware um, of the, the way in which uh, the two languages are used. And I think that helps them to, to, to sort out the two languages mm. and keep them distinct um, when they yeah. need to. No, I'm just thinking how uh, my daughter in, in Korea, when a, and somebody who was not Korean would be vl- very fluent in Korean, come over and be speaking in Korean. She said, Dad, why, do, why does he speak Korean? <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, out of the mouths of babes. So mm-hmm. the, if we didn't have a word for schadenfreude, would we be able to uh, – would we have an idea of that concept? Like, does is, is having the word the thing – is it the chicken or the egg? Is it having the word that, that makes us think of the thing or is it vice versa? Yeah, it's an interesting question because when I became of, of that word and many others that I learned when I was learning German, um, I can remember having that distinct feeling that, oh, yeah, it's really good to have that word because it really captures something which, you know, that I was kind of aware of but yeah. didn't have a word for. So I suspect that, at least in my case, that indicates that there was a concept of some type there already, but there just wasn't a word for it. I guess if that concept is socially really important, then the community of language users would eventually find a word to be able to express that that concept. Um, So maybe that means that English speakers, for that that community, schadenfreude isn't sufficiently important. (laughs) We we were so much nicer before we learned the word. I don't think that's all true. Interesting that on the internet these days, sites like BuzzFeed love running these lists of concepts that English doesn't have that that it should. And we made up a word for them. We made up the word listicle so that yeah, we could explain right. what they are. It's language change in action <laughs> yeah. right there. Yeah. But one of the words is the exact opposite of schadenfreude. It's taking pleasure in somebody else's good fortune. And I don't remember mm. what language that originated in, but that is an, also an equally good one. and sensible yeah. word to have. Or, or German, something sort of similar, the uh, Fremdschämen. So if your friend does something embarrassing, mm-hmm. you feel vicariously embarrassed for them. Oh right. yes, well. we all know yeah. that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, right. yeah. Sasha, if we didn't if we didn't have a word for up, mm-hmm. would we have a concept for up? 
Do you know what I mean? Like, like, because I can't, I could not explain what up is without that word. I don't know how I would explain uh, it's up there. That doesn't make any sense. You know, if if I didn't have the word up, how would I explain that? So you can, I mean, another one of the, talking back, going back to the origins of language, so another one of the theories about where language came from is it developed out of gestural systems. So we can always, I I can't do that on the radio, (laughs) but we can can point towards um, the sky. So we can explain it as a a concept for up. Um, However, if you didn't have a word for up, it would be uh, then all of the other expressions that I gave examples before, like get up and and um, put up and and so on, uh, send up, would be extremely hard to understand because you don't have a network to go with that word. So um, as Stephen was saying before, when he's trying to learn a new word, he has to hook it on to other things mm-hmm. that are already in his, uh, what we call the mental lexicon or the dictionary that's in our heads. And so if you don't have a word for something, you don't have that network of other th- ex- associations that go with that word. So it's... you you can explain it you can you can you know you can come up with some way around it that explains that word but you're not going to have that rich set of associations mm. that goes with the word mm. that form part of the meaning of that word in a broader sense yeah. Because just thinking about this idea of up, and we have a similar, uh, just a fairly simple way of doing it, but you could imagine a language saying that this is moving against gravity, right? That it's Mm -hmm. all tied to some Mm -hmm. idea of moving against gravity. And Mm -hmm. and I guess with some of the aboriginal languages, the directional stuff moves relative to the sun, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. you know, east and west rather than... Mm Which, left and right and mm-hmm. these – Yeah, know. which brings us to and, – and we discussed whether or not it was going to be okay. So listeners, there might be spoilers if you have not seen the word. If you have not seen the movie Arrival, um, there's going to be some spoilers here. But Arrival uh, is – is uh, the, the main character is a linguist. And one of the things they look at is an alien language which can explain time. So the idea is if you understand this language, you have a different sense of time. Am I explaining that right? Is that it? So there is this idea that, that a ling- – so your language could not be – directional based on going away from the sun. It could be based on something entirely different. Mm. Is that, I mean, is that, how, how would that work? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the premise of the movie, um, and yes, sorry to give it away if you haven't seen it's been it out for yet. a couple of months. You've seen <laughs> it's it been out for a while. Is that uh, these aliens come to Earth and they have... Uh, come up with a new, uh, with a, a writing, well, a, a system for explaining ideas which is circular. So um, our writing system and um, to a certain extent our thought processes are, are, are stuck within a linear time dimension as humans and they've come up with a way of uh, expressing all dimensions in a circular way which is then um, said to allow them to see time in a circular way and therefore to be able to see the future. So they see time as something that's already happened. Um, You did a much better job of explaining (laughs) it. (laughs) So it's a very interesting premise and you... The, the same thing happens when you're talking about similar ideas that have been proposed for, well, actually one of the more famous ideas within linguistic determinism from the 20th century was um, Benjamin Worf, who claimed, who was a North American linguist who worked with a number of Native American languages, and he famously claimed that the Hopi have no words for time, <laughs> which was then conclusively proven to be incorrect <laughs> and completely off the mark later. Um, and so the the issue is 
whether it's lack of it or something in the environment or something in the culture which leads the language to be a certain way or whether the language itself can cause a thinking pattern which wasn't there beforehand. So to take Stephen's example, if you did have a group of, of speaking beings who lived in a world without gravity... Would they have a word for up? Yeah. <laughs> and if they didn't, would that just show that they don't have gravity, or would that show that they, yeah, that they <laughs> don't have the concept because they yeah. don't have the word? Yeah. Because you would also have to have the the aliens in Arrival must have very different brains to us because our brains don't work in a circular way. Our brains mm. work. Well, actually, I don't know. <laughs> Do our brains work in a linear way? I mean, I, I, you know, I, you know, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff to out myself mm-hmm. as a Doctor Who fan. We, we like, I find the idea of circular time quite difficult to grasp. That that mm-hmm. I start the minute I start thinking about that, I start my brain goes a bit wobbly because I don't. It doesn't make sense to me mm-hmm. how that could possibly work. So I feel like our, maybe it's just me. But do, do our brains work in a linear way? And that's why our language has come from there. That's a really big question. <laughs> do we know the answer to that? I, I doubt whether we do. I mean, the um, no, the answer. I mean, yeah. um, I mean, if you look at, at how languages express time, um, that's typically done in a in a linear fashion. But there's got other dimensions on top as well, which express things like whether something is continuing or is completed. So it's not quite as simple as just saying there's a linear view of, of time because we do have that sense of, 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 of whether things are likely to be ongoing or not likely to be ongoing. And, and languages will do this in quite different ways. Some will do it through the, the tense system of, of the verbs. Others will do it through particles. But I suspect that um, – I'm mean, going out on a limb here – but I suspect that most languages have some way of, of, of um, expressing Past and future, whether that's through a verb system or through some other mechanism, yeah. and, and maybe the you know the Wolf's problem with Hopi was that he was looking for something in the verb system and it was actually it expressed was somewhere else. else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that, I mean, I, your question was more uh, was a bigger one. Than that yes. in terms of, it, was, yeah. it was a little but, philosophical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but some of the philosophical questions, and then just thinking about this issue of if you are just looking in the verbal system, you may not see it, but it, every language I've studied does have the ability to express some sort of past tense, even if you're just inserting an adverb yesterday Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. to indicate. And I don't think any human society really has a problem with that concept. But uh, both Greek and Maori share, I hope I'm getting this right, but just the idea, the the connection between what's before and um, in front of you and behind you. And for the Greeks, what was behind, that's um, actually, that's the future because you can't see it. Whereas we think of the future as is in front, and I think Maori works the same same way. So that's just kind of flipping something, and I think as native speakers of English, you might think, oh, that's interesting. But as soon as you're informed about it, I don't don't think it's a really huge leap for us to make other than to say that it's different Mm. from the Mm. way that we actually conceive of it. Yeah. One of the things that we also, I guess, well, actually, is it possible then I mean, it's it's an interesting concept, but not that difficult to understand. But how do we get to a place where is is there such a thing as lost in translation? Is there such a thing as a perfect translation? You do literary translation, Stephen. Is there such a thing as a perfect translation of a work between two languages? A perfect tra- no. I mean, there there can't be that. It can only be perfect if the community of the 
people, the target language, regard this as a perfect literary work. And in that sense, I guess then it becomes a perfect translation. But whether it has perfectly carried over the ideas, well, some it, it would just be all. I think it's always easy to pick holes in any form of translation because it has to work for every single speaker or every person in the in the target language who has access to the original as well. So and, you I, can do and that. I would suspect that bilingual authors who do their own translations are aware of the fact that what they're conveying in one language is quite different mm. in, in mm. some crucial aspects to what they're able to convey in, in the other language. Mm. So even the, you know, the people who had those original thought processes and produced the version in one language um, wouldn't feel satisfied, entirely satisfied with what they've been able to convey in the other language. Because is that what we mean when we say something is lost in translation? That there is, that there just isn't a um, a way to say uh, one concept in another language. That's what we mean. I suspect so. Yeah, yeah. yeah partly that that some if something is lost in translation, that you, you you can get the concept across, but I think the way of expression, the the level of elegance that you might have in as you move something from one language to another, the the feeling, the rhythms, all of these things that might make something a really great sentence in French and then it comes over into English and really does express pretty much the same mm-hmm. thing that both French speakers and English speakers would agree that it's the same, but it doesn't have the same feeling, the same rhythm. It's not a great sentence in English where it was a great mm-hmm. sentence in French, for yeah. example, who might have something like that. Yeah. What language is it that has more than 50 words for snow? Lots of them? Apocryphally. Apocryphally, yeah. Various different languages that are spoken around uh, the polar region, the North Polar region. Right. But they don't actually have 50 words for snow. So then you get into what's a word. <laughs> okay. What is a word? There we go. This should, maybe should have been the start of the discussion. <laughs> uh, so in... Um, in a lot of those languages, they are what we call polysynthetic, which basically uh, – so one of the issues is that in a lot of those languages, um, uh, they're polysynthetic, which means that uh, a lot more things get put into what in English would seem equivalent to a word in terms of its sound structure and the way it functions, but in terms of its meaning is more equivalent to an entire sentence in English. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, so rather than snow, uh, there are snowflakes or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or this is a, a man who has snow on him or something right. like that might be a, a word, right? <laughs> um, but if you can break it down into parts, does that count as if you've got, you know, man, snow, on? <laughs> is, is that count as four words or does that count as one word? And then if it's he's got snow on his hat, say, instead of on his – and that's a different yeah. word, does that count as just the suffix is different or the whole word is different? So depending on how you count words, you can get four words for snow or you can actually get several thousand words for snow. <laughs> is this, is, uh, is this a um, controversial thing in the world of linguistics, what actually counts as a word? Yes. Yes. Well, it's something that I think um, – well, I, th- I don't know if it's controversial, but it's certainly linguists would – if you just said it's a word, would say, no, you need to define what kind of word you're talking about. We need right. to d- recognise that there are different different ways of, of figuring out what a word is and those different different definitions will make sense in different uh, yeah. contexts depending on what you're talking about. Um, so in those languages um, – uh, 
if you kind of break it down into how many roots or how many kind of parts there are that that are equivalent to frozen water, it probably comes out as four or five. But then if you talk about English, we have ice, we have snow, we have sleet. Powder, We have powder. And so it's not actually necessarily mm. as different as you'd think it is. And it's interesting that you said you know, we have powder if you're a skier. And one of the key things there is that the the vocabulary that you you have to a certain extent depends on your your sphere of activity. And um, if you look at different language communities, they have different experiences because of their environment, and so they're likely to want to make different kinds of distinctions mm. between different types of snow. And if you're a skier, you want to have powder as one of your words for snow. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean. We, we, we mentioned linguistic determinism earlier, mm-hmm. and I want to come back to that because it is this idea that does language shape how we think? That's, what, that's essentially what it is, right? So the, the strongest form is that if, you, if your language doesn't have a way of expressing something, then you are incapable of thinking it. <laughs> that's the strongest form. The weaker form is that is what well what is sometimes called linguistic relativity and that is the idea that things that your language in some sense forces you to express or which need to be expressed in order to form a good sentence in your language um, shape the way that you think compared to a language which doesn't force you to say certain things or to express certain things. So one of the other um, podcasts that we recorded, we um, discussed the fact that the word sexism only mm-hmm. appeared in the 19th 19- 60s, and the word genocide came out in the 1940s. So this is us coming up with words for things that are happening in the world around us, and that is constantly happening, right? That happens all the time. Who wants to take that? Mm -hmm. Well, you see it in the the IT world. There is now, um, as well as a noun Google, there's also a verb Google, and that fits the pattern of English because you Googled or you're Googling or somebody Googles. Um, so we, we take forms and readily um, extend their uses uh, in that kind of grammatical way. Um, and if, the, uh, as your examples show, if there, if there is a concept for which we don't have a word, we can take elements that we already have and create that word. So sexism was was. You know, a word that was coined by taking an ending ism, which is used quite regularly um, to express um, sort of the, the kind of generic idea of something, um, and adding it onto uh, onto sex to make that that word. Yeah, um, yeah. But the idea was always there. It wasn't that sexism appeared in the nineteen sixties. <laughs> uh, no, well, the, it probably became a, a notion that was um, politically and socially significant enough that a term was needed to to express it and that indicates that as um, as society changes so the needs for our expression um, change as well and that will lead to developments in language some of which will be through coining new words and some of which will be through reusing existing words in a different way mm. and so words will, will take on a different form take on a different meaning um, from from what they might have had before so I remember when my and when my children were first growing up, I remember them coming back from school saying, "Oh, that was wicked." Um, which for me, wicked had mean you know had meant evil, mm-hmm. nasty, horrible, but for them was something really positive and great. Uh, and so, existing words take on new meanings, um, often through uh, how young people use the language, but not always through yeah. through what young people are doing. 
and I have to jump in since you use wicked because I'm from the Boston area where wicked, when I was in elementary school, that was the single most important adverbial modifier. You know, wicked good. (laughs) (laughs) So usages can have, even within a single larger language family, Mm -hmm. can have very local Mm. Uh, meanings as well. Yeah. You That's mentioned really good. the IT people. They're constantly taking words and making them mean something different. Mm. They often talk about agile now, which I suppose means the same thing agile means. So if... So what does... Sorry, what, sorry, sorry I should explain. <laughs> what does so when they talk mean? about... So when IT, um, there is this idea, uh, it's a way of doing business. Uh, and I'm, I, IT people are going to scream at me on the internet that I've got this wrong. But the idea is if you, if you do... Um, if you're an agile business, uh, you make decisions really quickly and you, um, and you go away and do them and you fail quickly and you try th- new things and, and you have stand-up meetings in the morning because you shouldn't sit around in meetings all day and you shouldn't have five-minute meetings and all that sort of thing. So it kind of means the same as what agile means if we're talking about a human body, but we're applying it to a business, um, I guess. Which, yeah. They talk about it. IT people like their, like their um, coinages. There's, a, there's another side, because coming back to linguistic determinism and linguistic relativity, is another aspect to that, which is that um, we can, of course, influence other people's ways of viewing the world through the choice of language that we make. Um, and an area where that's seen um, quite a lot, I think, is through... Um, what kinds of questions might get asked of a witness? Um, so if a witness has seen a, a vehicle accident and you say or you, you ask that witness um, how, how fast was the car, car sorry how fast was the car moving when it when it hit the truck you'll get a very different answer from if you ask them how far was the car moving when it crashed into the truck um, where crashed into will result in a higher estimate of the speed of the car than if you used hit the truck. And that's an, an, an example of how the words that you choose can be quite influential in the response that you get. And that's something which um, obviously the police force um, and, and, and other people involved in interviewing witnesses and, uh, and situations like that need to be quite aware of. Yeah. Um, those kinds of leading questions, if you like. When did you stop beating your wife? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's, I guess the, um, so if, how conscious are we when we're making decisions about language? I mean, that, that's a really good example, the, when it hit the truck. How conscious are we even, or how are we making the decisions of what words we choose? Is that just a thing that happens in our brains? Or, or are we actually making a choice to say hit versus crash? Um, it happens very quickly. I think in those kinds of situations um, where you're interviewing a witness, probably what you should be doing is thinking carefully about how you're going to express that question before you put it. But, uh, in an everyday situation, we get access to the words in our mental dictionary, as Sasha described it earlier, very rapidly um, and put them into sentences very rapidly. I mean, we're talking now a pretty fast rate in terms of words per minute. We haven't sat down and planned these sentences that we're producing into these microphones. Hey, I did. And it's quite remarkable how quickly we can do it, and usually without making too many mistakes, although when we do make mistakes, they're quite interesting too because we can look at the patterns of errors that people make when they're speaking and use those as evidence for what kinds of resources we're getting together at a particular point in time that then interfere with one another and produce that kind of mistakes. That's one of the things that I, as a psycholinguist, would look at is the speech errors that people make in their fluent first language productions. Um, 
fluent being um, not always the case. Yeah. And yet also if you ask someone to think of a word, it can often be really difficult to actually think of the word. You know, if you ask someone to come up with words for snow, I could only think of one. It is quite difficult sometimes to access that, that mental dictionary. And yes, and we do often experience that in our everyday lives. We, we, we know there's a word for something. We just can't find it, um, the sort of the tip of the tongue um, experience. And often when people are in that situation, if you ask them, what can you remember about that word? They will be able to tell you something about how long it is, how many syllables it's got, perhaps what it starts with, what it ends with, but they just can't find the complete word. And it's very interesting that this happens with names, and I'll, I'll out myself <laughs> here, that we just ran into somebody I knew when we went out for coffee who I, I, I know, and I recognized him. But I could only get the first letter for his name. Otherwise, I would have just introduced Paul just now. So it's, it's just, just in, and it is interesting for me at least what I find with names, um, especially place names and people's names, that there seems to be something very particular going on in my brain that the way I access them is through the first letter of the name. And it was very clear to me that his name starts with K, but I could not get any further than that. Have you thought of it? No, you probably. I, I, I have other things. It's going to be two syllables, and it's. I, I want to say Kamal, but it's not Kamal. <laughs> it's, it will come to you. I guarantee yeah. <laughs> In that case, then, are, are names different to words? Is there something going on in your brain that names or place names are different to the word for snow? Hmm. Are they different? I mean, they're certainly still words, but I suppose, yeah, there there may be something particular about the way that my brain is processing the information. Maybe Paul can tell me something more about what what, uh, what is happening on this and whether it's generally the case that people, when they attach names to human beings or to places, that there's a different process going on with other common nouns. Yeah, I think well, that the, the properties of, of proper names um, – are much more individualistic, I think. And, and while we might share a notion of snow or cat or dog or whatever and, and have quite a sort of shared understanding of that, um, we don't have quite the same shared understanding of, of, of particular names because we, know different, the same. because we know different people with... with you know, mm-hmm. different, we know different Sarahs. Um, so in some sense, they probably are being dealt with differently and they are being linked to individuals in a way that perhaps cat might not be linked to an individual cat. Although if you look at children learning their first language, they will use a word like cat for a very specific cat that they mm-hmm. are growing up with in their in their house. And it takes them a while to realise that they can use the word cat for other cats outside the house or even a, a, you know, a picture of a cat inside the house. It's all very... Um, very much linked to a particular occasion and a particular occurrence, a particular individual. And I suspect that even you know, with adults, proper names are probably quite similar, not, not, not quite as precise as that, but we link names to individuals uh, in a way that won't be true of, of common nouns. Mm. And I, in terms of, you know, language creating a world, which is the idea of the course you guys you were all teaching, is that idea that one cat, a specific cat, becomes all cats. Right. The, the idea is as you create a world for yourself, as you grow up and learn the language, mm-hmm. it actually is creating a world. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, one, it's one of the things that children love doing is finding labels for things. So, you know, the kinds of questions you get from young kids are, uh, you know, what's that? What's that? Which basically means what's the name for that object? Because they want to categorize their world in some way. And growing up as a 
an individual with a language, um, part of what you want to do is relate to your world and find words that allow you to, to talk about your world and express what's going on in your world. And language changes as the world changes. So we talked about um, we talked about um, the word sexism or genocide, but but text speak and um, internet words and BuzzFeed, all these things change as our world changes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and you will get older generations complaining <laughs> about oh, yes, how younger generations <laughs> are using using language. Um, but it's it's very much a you know, a fact of language that it does change over time. And well, and because we want to. Because we can use language to tell, to express information about ourselves as well as about the thing that we're trying to talk about. And that's one of the theories as to why there are multiple languages in the world instead of just one is from the beginning of time, people have wanted to say, well, we're different from that family over there because <laughs> they <laughs> don't put the, the, the leaves on their hatch quite right, but right. we do. And so we're going to talk about that in a slightly different way. Or they want, to ha- or kids want to have encodes that their parents don't necessarily mm-hmm. understand. And all of these kinds of things lead to pressures on a micro level for people to talk differently to the people around them, which over time separates uh, into separate languages for different groups of people. So in some ways your kids saying wicked is a, is a slight rebellion against how you use the word wicked? Probably more it's, uh, I mean, that may, may have been the origin of it somewhere uh, for some individuals, but I suspect once it takes off, it's more a question of them wanting to identify with their peer group. Uh, and we will accommodate our language to the language of the people around us who we feel are part of our in-group. Um, and that makes us, as Sasha was saying, that makes us distinct from the, the other group that, in Sasha's example, build their roofs in a slightly different yeah. way. <laughs> so I can, I can be forgiven for using lol when saying it out loud because I spend so much time on the internet. <laughs> or, or thinking about, I just used in a text uh, last week for the first time, sweet as, but using it with a trade. <laughs> You know, somebody, uh, I wouldn't be likely to use the phrase sweet as at the university, but out in the larger community here in New Zealand, somebody delivering some firewood, you know, sweet as. It just seemed like the exactly appropriate thing to say in that particular (laughs) context. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much. Um, My thanks to Dr. Sasha Calhoun, Dr. uh, Professor Paul Warren, Associate Professor Stephen Epstein. Uh, Great ideas was made in association with Victoria University. It was engineered by Phil Bend with production assistance from Adam McCauley and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can find other episodes of Great Ideas and more of RNZ's podcasts at rnz.co.nz. Listener.